This is Life Worlds, the place where we explore life through other eyes and minds. Let's flip the script and discover how to orient your world around nature. I'm Alexa Permanish. Come join me as we get down and forage for fungi, stalk coyotes, draft laws for rivers, hum with beehives, sing bird language, and help beavers to dam again. Let these stories spark your reconnection to nature's multiverse. Learn how to bring ecosystems back to life, become an agent for other intelligences, and begin to see how you too are the sum of all life worlds. You're listening to the full episode of Designs for Life, Nature-Based Plans with Herb Hammond. Greetings all. Thank you for tuning in. I am thrilled to share with you today one of the most respected elders in the space of nature-based planning, which he's now calling nature-directed planning. Herb started out as a conventional forester, but soon became pretty dispirited with the destructive practices he saw inside of the industry, which led him to go on and found the Silva Forest Foundation, which he ran with his wife Susie for 30 years. Over the course of their career, they've developed over 25 of these large nature-directed plans for Canada and around the world, upending the ways that landscape management is conceived and implemented. I'm your host, Alexa Fermanish. Now it's over to Herb Hammond. Let's jump right into it. I would love to begin by setting the scene in terms of just the terminology of your work and what it is that you've been doing for most of your life, but especially for the last 30 years or so with the Silva Forest Foundation, you developed these nature-based plans all across Canada and in other parts of the world. And I understand that the nature-based planning or ecosystem-based planning terminology now has a different name. But before we get into the semantics, what is it that you do in the world and that you have been doing? What I do in the world is be part of nature. That's my goal. And that led to the development of our planning system. But most importantly, I see nature as a teacher. I see nature as someone who can nurture me and others if we listen. It's often been said by indigenous people that nature speaks to those who listen. And I try to do a lot of listening. And from that listening, help myself and others develop ways of being reciprocal and respectful parts of nature. In terms of how people think about the ecosystems they live in and those economies, how have you been able to listen to nature to develop the plans that you guys worked on? And what's the process of even coming to terms with what a landscape might be requesting or asking for both the humans and the more than human lives inside of it? Well, the first thing to know about that is that you have to be in nature. You can't do that from a computer or a geographic information system. They can be helpers, but first of all, you have to be a part of nature yourself and you have to listen. And most importantly, you have to start from your heart. Your heart doesn't lie, uh, it speaks the truth. And we need to be comfortable with that. We, we need to learn to trust our heart, to trust our intuition. We're the only uh, living organism that seems to want to d deny our intuition. It was put there in all beings for survival. And so those 
overarching thoughts are what led me to think about practical ways that I could engage people both with their heart and with nature. And that led to a practical planning system that is nature-based. But what I realize more and more as I do it is that it's not so much nature-based as it is nature-directed. Nature is in the driver's seat here, and we need to listen to her. So I have changed the name of what we do from nature-based, which is a bit anthropocentric to begin with, to nature-directed, which recognizes the rightful place of nature and the need for reciprocity with nature, not only in our plans, but in our actions. How would a a nature-directed, or in the old terminology, nature-based plan look like? Like if I were to come across one on the table, you know, on the table right now in this room, how could I tell that it was a nature-directed development plan? What would be the components of it, and perhaps as the ones that you developed through your own system? Well, first of all, a nature-directed plan doesn't assume human development. We, we want, want to be really clear about that point. A nature-directed plan uh, has as a first priority to protect the integrity and resilience of nature and the ecosystems that comprise nature. And within that protection, then it works at a community level to develop a balanced use of landscapes within ecological limits. And by balanced use, I mean balanced between human and non-human users of that landscape. And if you saw a plan uh, sitting in, in front of you on a table, One of the things that would set it aside from many plans is that it's very map-based. It's very visual. It consists of a series of interpretive maps that are now largely produced using geographic information systems because of the amount of data they involve. And the maps tell a story. You start with map one and maybe end up at map 14. And the maps tell the story of the natural character of the ecosystem, what it was like before industrial civilizations impacted it. But it it does include that natural character, indigenous management systems. So it starts out with that picture. And that, in most cases, is a reconstruction because in many cases around Earth, the natural character has been obliterated by our industrial civilizations. And then it contrasts that natural character with the current condition. So the difference between the current condition and the natural character can be thought of as the restoration deficit, that what needs to be fixed going forward in order to fit ourselves into ecosystems in respectful ways and for those ecosystems to continue to provide the gifts that sustain our way of being as well as all beings. And another key map defines ecological limits. Uh, Their ecological limits are like flashing yellow lights out there in nature to say, don't be very aggressive here. Don't modify this very much or you'll change the form of nature outside of its natural range of variation. 
So that's a very important concept, and it's a concept that's vital to respect in anything that we do. And there's some other maps that deal with the specific character of the landscape and ecosystems where we're doing the plan. But eventually, you get to a next to final map, which describes a protected landscape network or a network of ecological reserves, which forms the framework of protection within which human activities can be fit as long as they respect ecological limits there. And the final map then takes guidance from that next to final map of ecological reserves and puts in place what we call human use areas. Those human use areas start by recognizing a very simple principle, and that's focus first on what to leave, then on what you can use. And what to leave are fully functioning ecosystems at all scales. So that applies to even the areas where you will be carrying out certain kinds of uses. That process of determining human use areas is community-based, which is really important because that's the location and the only location through time where human beings have developed sustainable economies, economies that last through time and don't overtax natural systems, that don't move beyond ecological limits. So that's a quick description, uh, minus the visual parts of it, of what a nature-directed plan consists of. It strikes me that that final part, the human use areas, where you do the process with a community of, I think you've called it appreciative inquiry, and I'm sure you had many other methods of, of engaging conversation with communities, is probably the most challenging piece because you have to reconcile human desires and human wants with what the necessities might be or the needs. Maybe you can give an example of that human use area conversation as it unfolds. How does the community come to an agreement on like, okay, we will use these areas for these things, but I want my bicycle lanes and I want my, you know, uh, high-rise apartment building. How does the community come to agreement on that stuff? Well, that is probably the question of our age. And it really is a question that the answer to which is we need to change our ways of thinking uh, and relating to each other. And we don't shy away from that in these plans. In fact, from the very beginning in working with a community, be it an urban community or a rural community, an indigenous community, a rural community that's a mixture of indigenous and non-indigenous people, we talk about that from the beginning. And we uh, encourage people to explore that idea because I think that most people have lost touch with their hearts and they, they've lost touch with common sense that comes along with heart-based thinking. So I think that the way you break down those barriers in a community and bring a community together is to start with a story of who and where, who human beings are and where we fit into this picture. And if you elevate the picture into what's called a concentric view of where we are, rather than an anthropocentric view, then as Dennis Martinez, who coined the term 
kincentricity many years ago reminds us is that when you see nature as kin and all parts of nature that you're related to, it's impossible to classify any part of nature as a natural resource, for example, because before you can take in a concentric relationship, you have to ask permission. And if permission is granted, then you take with respect and then you give back with reciprocity. That's what a regenerative approach means. So if you explain all that ahead of a plan to a diverse community, it's always amazed me how many people that might have come into that conversation with their hearts in a safety deposit box take them out of that safety deposit box and feel comfortable talking about these ideas in a more holistic way. And that then leads to the understanding that there's a really important hierarchical arrangement at work here in our relationship with nature. And that's simply stated, economies are part of human cultures and human cultures are part of ecosystems. So it follows logically from that, that if you protect ecosystems, you will always have healthy cultures. And if you have healthy cultures, you de facto have healthy economies because all an economy really is, is people relating to people providing the goods and services that we need with an emphasis on the word need. Our erstwhile global economies prosper at the destruction of local ecosystems and local economies. So once people understand that what an economy really is, and uh, hopefully buy in or understand the idea of a gift-based economy, then that changes the whole conversation. Suddenly people are willing to change their ways of thinking because they realize that perhaps throughout their lives, they've been conditioned to a way of being that is really an assumption of convenience, not anything based in real truth. And once that story's told, it's not to say that everybody is, is suddenly of one mind, but what happens in general is that people accept that basic principle, the basic principle of being a respectful part of nature, and with that acceptance comes the willingness to design and be a part of a totally different way of relating to nature and each other. There certainly is no lack of things to do in a community-based economy that fits itself into nature. In fact, another thing, and I think it's really important about what I've just described, is that in all those uh, tasks or what we might call jobs, People feel good about them. They feel good about being a responsible and reciprocal part of nature. And that grows on people. That grows into loving what they do. And that means sharing that love throughout the community and with nature through reciprocity. What seems really compelling to me about living in a community where a plan has been developed. I've never lived in a place like that. I've lived in cities in different places, but I've never lived anywhere where I was part of a larger overarching vision for that place that had been collectively decided together. And I knew 
intimately how the ecosystems around and the other forms of life and the other humans, how we all fit into each other's stories. And it seems to me that one of the beauties of these plans, these maps, these um, agreed upon sort of structures that are obviously change over time is that you you know what you're living inside of and within. And from that, I think, can spring a lot of satisfaction. I agree. I think that what we're talking about touches people very deeply. And I, I think that, as I mentioned earlier, that once people get engaged in living this way, being part of nature-directed living, I don't think they go back. I, I, don't, I don't think that, that they say, okay, I'm going to go back and sign on to a perpetual growth-oriented material-based corporate economy. Uh, I think they realize that equity is a very powerful thing. And in its ultimate sense, nature-directed plans are not only equitable when it comes to human beings, but equitable when it comes to nature and human beings' relationship with nature. Let's talk about that industrial economy for a second. When we originally connected, we spent quite a lot of time speaking about forestry, and you have experience as a forester, and you went to forestry school. And I remember one of our first conversations, you were describing your disillusionment with how forestry is taught in British Columbia and most likely in other parts of the world. And you said, forestry school teaches people not to connect their heart to their brain, and that it is a human weakness that we teach ourselves to not listen to our intuition. I'd love to dig in a little bit to what you meant by that, why is it that foresters, people who are, quote unquote, working with natural resources and cutting down trees, why should foresters be connected to their heart? And how have you, as a heart-based forester, veered away from how forestry was practiced? Well, teaching people not to connect their hearts to their brains, not to listen to their intuition, is a way that corporate-based industrial civilizations control people. They set the limits to what people can feel and do by making those kinds of choices for people rather than letting them make those choices themselves. And before I explain a little bit how I navigated through that, I want to mention that David Corton who is a very experienced economist, has written a, a really important book that touches on the questions that you asked, and that's uh, Change the Story, Change the Future, A Living Economy for a Living Earth. And the reason I mention that is that in that book, he points out that society has adopted the sacred money and market story, and that frames everything. It frames governance, it, it frames research, it frames education. And he points out that until we change that dominant story in society from a sacred money and market story to a sacred life living earth story, that we won't get to the places that you and I are talking about. And I really see that in my work. I see people forgetting that you can't change the system within a story uh, that limits what you can do. And that's what we're constantly trying to do around the world because our governance and systems and our economies are captured by that sacred money and market story. So in order to really make that change, we have to change 
the societal story, the, the societal ethic, if, if you will. So back to my own experience in dealing with it, uh, I found myself thinking as a young person that research would be the way to show people the problems with not connecting your hearts to your brain and not connecting with nature through your intuition and listening to nature. And so I set about becoming a scientist to do practical applied research to show the problems as well as the solutions. And with those solutions, the need to connect ourselves to nature and connect ourselves to our heart. Well, I found out very quickly that there were a lot of barriers to doing that. The control of the money and market system that I referred to earlier has tentacles everywhere. And some of those, that control that people exercise, they don't even realize they're doing it because it's just the story. One example of that is that I, I started working with indigenous people whom I've had the privilege to learn from and share with over the last four plus decades. And I, I realized in making those connections that here were cultures that started from their heart, that trusted their intuition, that had their hearts clearly connected to their brains. And they had developed a system of knowledge that is totally different than the scientific approach. Uh, and yet we in the Western world have largely discounted that knowledge. Yeah, Herb, I think in these sort of indigenous systems of knowledge that you're describing that are obviously in some ways <laughs> infinitely more place-based and intuitive than some of the systems we have around us, make that come alive for people. What would it look like? And maybe we can stick with the example of forestry just because I know that you really dug deep on that subject in your life. How would a traditional knowledge of forestry or forest use or working with trees and forest ecosystems look different to what is being taught in a conventional forestry school setting or in the academy of forestry? Well, indigenous knowledge is fundamentally different than scientific knowledge because it's observation-based. It also accepts whole systems and accepts with that the understanding that undisturbed whole systems work perfectly. What doesn't work perfectly is our knowledge of them. And so indigenous people and indigenous knowledge doesn't have to use reductionist science to try to tear apart a system to find two variables that interact with each other that maintain the system. It accepts that that reductionist aspect doesn't apply to natural systems. And because of that, it doesn't deter itself into a lot of what I would call kind of meaningless questions when it comes to the big picture. It focuses on how to protect the system and be a respectful part of it. And when it does things to the system, it asks the question, the simple question of, is it still working? Are the salmon still there? Is the water still pure? Is the climate still moderate? And with that kind of observation-based knowledge has come an extensive and very detailed uh, understanding of nature. So when you've looked at forestry plans, how have you 
shifted or adapted your activity and understanding of the ecosystem based on these other ways of knowing? Was there an example where you were perhaps indicated to take a certain path and you said, actually, no, because of this other kind of knowledge or because of my heart-based intuition, I choose to do this instead? Um, There are many examples of that. I can, for the moment, stay with the Inu example uh, because it's quite an interesting one. We became involved with the Inu because the government of Newfoundland and Labrador had planned to log with clear cuts a lot of Inu land. Inu land is part of what in Canada is called Labrador. It's uh, referred to by the Inu as Nitisinan. So I traveled to Nitisinan, met with the Inu, and spent lots of time on the land with them getting to understand what they knew about the land and applying my knowledge as an ecosystem scientist and a forester to what was being proposed. So it became a combination of heart-based thinking, which both myself and the Inu were comfortable with and led what we were doing, and also Inu knowledge with appropriate Western science. And from that, we developed a plan for a very large area, around 8 million hectares of land that encompassed a number of watersheds in Nitisinan. And when we presented that plan to the government, the government said, oh, this is absurd. You know, uh, these, these networks of ecological reserves. And we also, the Inu also designed a network of cultural reserves. So we said, okay, why don't we have this peer reviewed? So the government was kind of in a, an awkward place there because what were they going to do? Say no. And so they said, okay, let's peer review it. Just, just a quick question. Why did the government find it absurd? Because they obviously wanted money from the clear-cut logs that would have been out there. So was their objection an economical one where they said, well, you can't protect all this land because we need our revenues? Yes, their fundamental objection was that the plan negated carrying out clear-cut forestry in Nitisinan, not just for ecological and cultural reasons, but for the very fact that it didn't make economic sense. But that's quite another story that was included in the plan. But it's interesting to note that the studies done by the government themselves indicated it was not economical. So like a lot of economic development, it was going to be massively subsidized. Almost anywhere you look in the world and any kind of industrial activity, capitalism, quote unquote, market-based capitalism is propped up by subsidies that you and I and society pay for. And logging in Newfoundland or in Labrador, Nitisinan was a really good example of that. So we did the peer review, which included peer review by economists, as well as as ecologists uh, and foresters, and assembled that all. Um, And when we came back together a few months later in uh, Nitisinan at the home of the Inu, the government of Newfoundland and Labrador was there. And when the meeting started, one of the government officials before the Inu started the meeting said, we request the opportunity to make a statement before we proceed. And so the Inu leader said, okay. And the government of Newfoundland and Labrador apologized to the, the Inu 
for their earlier statements and confirmed that their own scientists thought that this approach was not only sound from a knowledge standpoint, but a state-of-the-art approach. And that was also echoed by the rest of the peer review. So when this nature-directed approach that we're talking about is tested, it comes out very well. And that's one of many examples that I could give you like that. I think an example also that, that comes to mind is this absurd notion I learned about in British Columbia, which is that leaving dead wood in the forest is a bad thing and that decaying wood should just be uh, removed because it's extravagant and it should be used for wood chips or quote-unquote green fuel and bio pellets. But obviously coming from a an ecological standpoint, you need that death and that decay for an ecosystem to have new life. So I'm sure that that would maybe also be an example of where a more heartfelt, intuitive sense would say, no, you need something dying in a forest for it to make a new life, whereas traditional forestry says, let's just get rid of all the dead wood. Well, what's interesting about that, I agree with you that heart-based thinking and nature-directed thinking would say those are essential those are parts of nature and parts of an ecosystem and to quote Aldo Leopold the intelligent tinker keeps all the parts and so we want to keep those parts there whether we know what they do or not but what's particularly perverse about that decision that you talk about in British Columbia and elsewhere for that matter in forestry jurisdictions is that those wood pellets that are captured from those tree parts or fallen trees are then made into pellets and shipped to largely one of the biggest sources is the UK and also Japan, where they're burned to produce electricity. That process, not including the transportation of all that distance, the process in and of itself of doing that produces significantly more greenhouse gases per unit of energy produced than burning coal. So here we are uh, on the, the threshold of runaway climate change, and we have people ignoring the science that you need to leave fallen trees in place and further ignoring the science by making them into wood pellets and burning them for electricity. I want to add one other really important thing about your example of fallen trees, and that's that decayed wood is nature's water storage and filtration system. Watersheds that function well, uh, depending on their size, have millions and billions of tons of decayed wood. That stores and filters water and slowly releases it into the system. The water that all of us use, the vast amount of it comes from forests. And that water depends upon plentiful supplies of decayed wood, not just decayed wood from forests of the past, but plentiful supplies of decayed wood going forward. If you think about it, decayed wood holds 20 times as much water as a given volume of most mineral soil. So if you don't have that decayed wood there, then you don't have that water storage and filtration system. And climate change is really emphasizing the need for it because it's drying everything out, making it even more critical to maintain those fallen tree structures and decayed wood in a system to conserve water. That's absolutely fascinating. Yeah, they're like above ground sponges that hold in the moisture. What are some other things that 
are absurd that are currently happening in some of these kinds of landscape management practices that you've seen and that you've probably rallied against? Well, the whole notion of clear-cut and plant trees is a broken idea. And the idea never had really any merit. It was developed and supported by a lot of assumptions of convenience as the best way to manage forests and grow trees. But in reality, all it simply constitutes is the fastest, cheapest way to turn trees into money. If you look at clear cuts and what we call short rotation forestry or growing trees for a short period of time, something in the order of 40 to 70 years before you then are going to cut them down again, that whole process is erroneously referred to as sustainable forestry. But if you compare that to nature and natural systems, even in boreal systems where trees live shorter lifetimes than they do in temperate rainforests, for example, or in in mountain forests like are found where I live and in Europe uh, across much of that landscape, trees there may live to be three or four times older. But in any event, even in the, where you have short life trees, they live for 150, 250 years and more. We're talking about truncating that natural progression or lifespan of trees and a forest into 40 to 70 years. So in doing that, you lose all the function of most of that length uh, or that age, aging of forests. Uh, a big one are the fallen trees and water that we just spoke about. When it comes to water and carbon storage and sequestration or capture of of carbon, which we're all concerned about in the climate change era, no forests do it better than old forests. Yet we're busily wiping them off the face of the planet and with no intention with clear cuts and short rotation forestry to ever replace them again. In fact, all we're going to do is grow young trees and cut them down again. It doesn't take much analysis to realize that we're basically destroying the natural system that sustains us and that has made life as we know it possible. So it's a pretty serious and far-reaching problem because it extends across the planet, wherever forests are. That's the general approach that's taken to them. And the other thing to know about that approach to forestry is that there's been some really good recent analysis. There are a number of climate scientists that are proposing what they call proforestation, not reforestation, but proforestation, and they're advocating for growing forests, trees, to their natural lifetime. So that whole process that I just described, it fits very nicely with nature-directed planning because it's focusing on what to protect, not on what to use. And the other thing to add here is that when it comes to climate change, people need to understand that tree plantations and short rotation forestry are an example of irrecoverable carbon. And irrecoverable carbon simply means that within the time frame we have left to mitigate global warming, that there's no way that cutting down trees and planting new trees are going to capture enough carbon to make a difference. So you can see that deficit that we've created as irrecoverable carbon. I I like that concept because it makes it really clear how serious 
what we're doing really is when it comes to survival, not only of our species, but of all species. Yeah, and it's pretty hard to greenwash when you use a word like irrecoverable. Um, I also just want to point out a pun that you did earlier when you spoke about truncating a, tr a forestry ecosystem. That was an unintentional, quite brilliant pun. How have you tried to upend this this way of thinking um, that is so rife in, in British Columbia and elsewhere? I know that you built and ran a school in the West Kootenays for many years where you were trying to bring traditional foresters into the land and run them through certain exercises that would imbue them with a different sensibility towards the land. It would be really interesting in the brief time we have left if you could explain how you worked with people to implement a lot of what you're describing. What kinds of exercises, what kind of tools did you use to transform their way of thinking? Well, it, it all goes back to the principle we've talked about from the beginning, and that's to be part of nature. It's amazing how many people make decisions about forests without ever being in the forest. Their problems come in envelopes and leave in envelopes. So the first step was to realize that if we were going to teach people and share these ideas with people, it needed to be in the forest. So the school was purposely built by volunteers in the forest so that we could be immersed there, not just while we were talking about things, but people stayed there. They came for a week. We had cabins, had a little school building. So we were always there. Uh, it was very easy to talk about nature because we were part of her. And the other key thing that we did was walk people through these plans, but we could walk them through the plans and then go outside and look at examples. So things came to life there. Their plans and ideas were no longer transmitted back and forth in envelopes. They were confronted by actually having to look at nature. We also did trips from that school to places where industrial forestry was practiced and got people to think about what they just learned and experienced in a natural system versus now what they were looking at in a clear cut or a tree plantation. So all of a sudden, the synapses connect and people go, oh, this clear cut and tree plantation is missing a whole lot of nature that's essential. And the other thing that we did was a really simple exercise that I first did with kids. And I have to say that when I did it with adults the first time, I was a little bit fearful of how it might turn out. But the exercise goes like this. You start off to take a walk in the forest and you tell people that we're going to walk for a ways and I want you to not talk to each other and just watch what's around you. And when we get to a place and a little opening in the forest, we sit down and I say, okay, what did you see that was important? And they talk about things they saw that was important. And then I shared some things that I saw that I thought was important. Then I get people to close their eyes and listen. And after a while of listening to the forest, listening to nature, people open their eyes and they talk about what they heard. Then the next step is to get people to walk around and lift things up smell. I always kind of caution people, don't taste it unless you check with somebody who knows, but get familiar with the odors and the pieces that are all around you. And then we talk about that again. And then I conclude that exercise by getting people to hug a tree. 
uh, to share the energy that that being is providing to them. And to think about uh, not only hugging that tree with love, but with communication. And it's interesting that we always had uh, a, a little debriefing session after this course. And I, many times I had people say to me things like, we came to this course because we thought you were crazy, but we're leaving with a whole different view of forests and how to relate to them. And so we thank you for that. So I, I think it's not as hard as we think to touch people's hearts and to get them to start connecting their hearts to their brains. The biggest difficulty is that most of those people went back into a bureaucracy or a timber company where that way of being was not reinforced. So while they added a new dimension, I think over time, it was easy for them to fall back into the old way of being. And we need to think about in our systems how to support people who want to make that change. And just a, a final question, Herb. Is there a a life lesson that another species or form of life has brought you something that might just leave a little trail of inspirations for others to hear, uh, maybe a, a lesson or a, some wisdom that you have carried with you in your life? I would say that water has been my real teacher because uh, starting from the time I was a boy, uh, happily fly fishing along streams to now, Water has been a very central part of my life because water transmits the essence of life. And it always engages me in asking, where did it come from? How did it become so pure? Why does it come in moderate amounts? And where is it going? And so that communication with water and with nature guides everything that I do and has shaped what I've done through the years. That's such a beautiful message. Thank you for sharing that. Herb, it's been such a joy. I am going to populate the show notes of this episode with lots of links to examples of these plans and maps and your work and some of the references you've shared. Thank you so much for your time and your care and your love for the earth and what you're doing. Thank you so much for listening to the podcast and stay tuned for a fresh Life Worlds episode coming out in two weeks' time where we will be talking about law and nature, looking at both indigenous law systems and the rights of nature. That's it for me today on Life Worlds. I'm Alexa Firmnish, your host, and as always, I would love to hear from you. So please reach out to me on our website, lifeworld.earth, where you can also find all of the show notes and an open source library ranging on everything from ecology to technology and life at large. Subscribe to the email list and I'll see you back here soon.